You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Ransom DDoS. It's been around for a while, but now it's become a much bigger thing. Phishing campaigns are putting malicious payloads into legitimate file sharing services. Malek Ben Salem from Accenture on proactive alpha innovator organizations. Our guest is Joseph Marks from the Washington Post on his recent coverage of election security. And it's time to go back to school, at least virtually, with all the attendant cyber risk. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Elliot Peltzman, filling in for Dave Bittner, with your CyberWire summary for Friday, September 4th, 2020. Bleeping Computer says that the U.S. FBI has issued an alert concerning what's being called RDDOS, Ransom Distributed Denial of Service, That is, it's a form of criminal extortion that threatens, not doxing, not encryption, and not data destruction, but simply making victims' networks unavailable. This kind of extortion is particularly serious to organizations that depend upon very high, reliable availability to conduct their business. RDDOS has now become a widespread problem, and the U.S. isn't the country that's been primarily affected. New Zealand's NZX stock exchange is still continuing its week-long struggle to disentangle its systems from the distributed denial-of-service attacks that have plagued it. Authorities in New Zealand haven't yet been able to identify who's responsible, beyond concluding that the attacks originate offshore, but the goal seems likely to be criminal extortion. A similar problem has surfaced in Europe, where a number of internet service providers have seen their DNS infrastructure under attack. ZDNet reports that ISPs in Belgium, France, and the Netherlands were all targeted with DNS amplification and LDAP-type DDoS attacks that took their services down. Some attacks lasted more than four hours and achieved volumes of 300 gigabits per second. The ISPs affected include Belgium's EDP, France's Bouillage Telecom, FDN, Knet, SFR, and the Netherlands' Kaiway, Delta, FreedomNet, online.nl, Signet, and tweak.nl. ZDNet points out, while disclaiming any proof of a connection, that the DDoS attacks began after an earlier wave of similar attacks against European financial services targets subsided. The Netherlands Cybersecurity Authorities confirmed that the attacks against Dutch ISPs at least were part of an extortion campaign that seemed likely to be true in the case of the other incidents as well. The attackers demanded a large but publicly unspecified sum in Bitcoin to call off the dogs, or rather, the bots. 
The attacks represent a trend in criminal extortion. To return to the FBI's warning, whatever criminal group is behind the attacks, and it does seem to be a straightforward criminal effort, not the work of state operators, is taking advantage of the notoriety of well-known threat actors by posing as Fancy Bear, Cozy Bear, the Lazarus Group, or the Armada Collective. Radware and Akamai have also warned of this trend, with Radware saying that they've seen it used against victims in North America, Europe, Asia and the Pacific, the Middle East, and Africa. The ransom demanded seems to range from 10 Bitcoin, which comes out to about 113,000 USD at current rates, and 20 BTC, or roughly 226,000 USD. Akamai offers a couple of samples of the ransom notes they've seen used since this past November, when the trend was in an earlier, more aspirational stage. Like this one. Quote, If you report this to the media and try and get some free publicity by using our name instead of paying, attack will start permanently and will last for a long time. End quote. The Hoods signed this one, Armada Collective. The Armada Collective is a criminal organization that's long engaged in denial-of-service attacks. Akamai described them at length as far back as 2015, so they might fairly be regarded as early adopters of the RDDOS tactic. Or consider this example. Quote, Your websites and other connected services will be unavailable for everyone. Please also note that this will severely damage your reputation among your customers. We will completely destroy your reputation and make sure your services will remain offline until you pay. End quote. Signed, Fancy Bear. But no, the bears have better writers, unless they're deliberately sandbagging, and these extortion attempts seem to be the work of criminal opportunists looking for the added FUD names like Fancy Bear bring with them. The FBI has four recommendations to make. First, don't pay the ransom. It only encourages the crooks, funds their next operation, and stokes a banded economy. Second, report attacks of this kind to your local FBI field office or their counterparts in other civilized countries. Third, use DDoS mitigation services that could identify and block such attacks. And finally, work with your ISP to monitor network traffic and block it when the signs of DDoS present themselves. Researchers at Cisco's TALIS unit describe a series of phishing campaigns that use legitimate file-sharing services to store the malicious documents they linked in their emails. The malware payloads include, among others, Gozi ISFB, Zloader, Smokeloader, and Ave Maria. So it's back to school, right? We assume all of you have a clean pair of sneakers and a nice new pencil box. All of us do. But of course, this isn't an ordinary school year, as schools pretty much everywhere figure out how to operate during a pandemic. Much of the adjustment has involved moving to distance learning with all the inevitable attendant vulnerability that produces. Some of that vulnerability has been exploited through DDoS, although the motive for this has generally been truancy as opposed to extortion. Such has apparently been the case in the DDoS attack on the Miami-Dade School District this week, as a 16-year-old high school junior admitted, when arrested, that he'd done it. It's not solely a U.S. problem, either. The U.K.'s Department for Education has told schools to be on the key vive for cyber attacks in the young academic year. And it's also not solely a school problem. 
the student who learns from home exposes the home to whatever badness is going on in the school's networks. KNX News Radio in Los Angeles points out breathlessly that, quote, hackers attacking school districts could end up in your living room via remote learning, end quote. Okay, we know, we know. So get it out of your system and crack wise that you're good to go, because you never use electronics in the living room, that all of your devices are reserved for the rec room, the nursery, the man cave, the she shed, the downstairs toilet, etc. It's a metaphor. Living room equals home. And KNX is right. Threats can propagate into your home network. So look to your home security. What goes on in school doesn't stay in school. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. We'll hear now from Dave's conversation with Joseph Marks from the Washington Post on his recent coverage of election security. You know, we spent a couple of years after 2016 preparing for one kind of threat, which was uh, Russian interference or interference from other nations in the 2020 election. And then, you know, obviously, as of March, we've been dealing with this whole different kind of threat, which is how do you run an election during a pandemic and try to both keep people safe and get the votes in and counted in a secure and reliable fashion. And while we're dealing with that second, that the first one hasn't gone away. So there's been a lot of movement in 
a lot of states on both of those things, but there are also a bunch of concerns in a number of cases on both levels. Uh, in terms of how we're going to vote, probably uh, about two-thirds to three-quarters of the states now have really made a significant transition to allowing voting by mail in a much broader sense and preparing for in a broader sense, even if it was basically allowed for everyone before. Uh, whether they have the capacity to process all of that stuff in an expedient way is still a little bit unclear. In terms of being secure against interference by foreign nations, we're a lot better on the technical side. You know, uh, going into 2016, probably about 30 percent, maybe a little bit more of all voting machines in the country didn't have a paper trail so that if someone monkeyed with it, you'd really have nothing to audit and no hmm. evidence of what went wrong. That's down now to probably about 8 um, percent. And as uh, Chris Krebs, the director of the Homeland Security Department Cybersecurity Division, said last week, if there's one tiny little bright line in all this pandemic, it's that because a lot of places have shifted to mail voting, well, mail is a paper trail. It might be a little more complicated for states that aren't used to it, but there's a paper trail there. So in places like New Jersey and uh, a few other districts uh, elsewhere in the country that didn't really make the transition to paper trail voting machines that they should have after 2016, things will be a little bit better than they might otherwise be in terms of having an auditable record so that we know definitely who won and, and can tally up the results. What about the, the whole notion of uncertainty itself? You know, we're seeing these uh, these stories, uh, some accusations that uh, perhaps the administration is making use of the Postal Service to, to potentially slow things down. Um, to, what, what's your insights on that in terms of the actual seriousness of those types of accusations? The danger of uncertainty is probably one of the most dangerous things we face. Now, certainly there has been, um, uh, there is a new Trump appointee at the Postal Service. It is documented the one thing they're trying to do in order to get mail going and transiting effectively with limited resources is to slow delivery of some things. That could affect ballots in some cases. It seems as if uh, whether or not mail is actually going slower, the post office has done some decent work at contacting particular states and saying, hey, your deadlines for ballots to come in uh, don't match with what we're capable of doing. We need to work that out somehow. Now, that, that's good or that's bad. I mean, a lot of states are of the opinion that you ought ma mail voting ought to be like voting in person. You ought to be able to cast your ballot anytime on election day or before, and it ought to be counted as long as it's postmarked. If the Postal Service is saying, okay, do that, but we can't get those votes in until six, seven, eight days later, that's going to be a real problem in terms of what those states consider to be the franchise. But this broader issue of uncertainty, you know, that's really what Russia was after in 2016. And as far as we know, it's what they're after this time as well. You know, you don't have to actually change any votes in order for a lot of Americans to feel as if they as if they don't trust the results of the election. And, you know, since 2016, uh, the thing that we've done the least well at is trying to effectively combat disinformation. Both there have been some decent efforts at shutting down you know, large Russian and Chinese and Iranian networks on social media. But in terms of educating the American public, getting them to take this stuff with a grain of salt, and creating the kind of unified nation where 
uh, that was sort of like we had in 2000 after the Supreme Court stopped the recount in Florida, where, you know, Democrats didn't go to the hills with their guns and try to get Al Gore in office, you know, some mm. sort of broad American understanding that we accept the results of the election, even if our guy didn't win. You know, we're not doing great on that as a nation right now. And that's probably the most dangerous thing we face. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really an interesting um, insight. And um, I, I suppose sort of chilling in a way that uh, it's not... It's hard to imagine um, that we're at this place where there are people having serious conversations about, you know, what if the, the sitting president, through his own channels, through his own <laughs> his, his, his megaphone, you know, says that uh, we're not going to accept the results of this election. I mean, that would be unprecedented. And yet we have folks ma- having serious conversations about those possibilities. And a lot of things have become unprecedented in the last four years and, and arguably longer but, you know, the real concern is, you know, we've sort of reached a place as a nation that that stuff is is effective. You know, it's you could do we've arguably made a huge amount of progress in terms of securing the actual ballot since 2016. That's great. You know, for those of us who, you know, are born by the the facts, you know, I feel a lot more comfortable about my vote being counted in 20 in 2020 than I, in retrospect, would in 2016. Um, Mm. But if the public doesn't buy it, then that's the ballgame. That's Joseph Marks from The Washington Post. If you'd like to hear an extended version of this interview, head on over to thecyberwire.com and check out Cyberwire Pro. And joining me once again is Malek Ben-Salem. She is the America's security R&D lead at Accenture Labs. Uh, Malek, it's always great to have you back. Um, You and I recently spoke about uh, Accenture's uh, security vision uh, paper that you all put out, and we wanted to dig into some more of the details uh, this time. Uh, What sort of things do you have to share with us today? Yeah, so our security vision this year focused on adopting new or emerging technologies and adopting them securely. So how can organizations innovate at speed and scale with implicit security? And uh, we performed a survey of, we surveyed about 500 companies uh, across the world. You know, these are big companies that have uh, revenues of $5 billion or more, and who are already adopting emerging technologies such as AI, XR, 5G, and quantum computing. And in our analysis, we wanted to focus on how are the companies doing or how are the successful companies uh, or what are the successful companies doing when it comes to adopting these technologies securely and how are the followers doing? So we wanted to identify the behaviors that organizations can emulate in order to innovate at speed and at scale with implicit security. So we've identified a number of companies that we call the alpha innovators. Uh, These are the companies that are investing in three or more of these emerging technologies. And again, the technologies are AI, XR, 5G, and quantum. 
And we looked at what they're doing well. And we compared them with what we call the followers who are uh, investing in just one or two of these technologies. Hmm. So uh, one of the behaviors we've identified is this collaboration uh, between security executives from day one with the um, business leads or other executives. And so when we did this survey, we wanted to understand also how CISOs viewed this collaboration versus how the other executives viewed um, this collaboration. So we wanted to look at this from both perspectives. Hmm. What did you discover? So the, 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 we found basically, or we've identified five power plays, if you will, uh, that these alpha innovators are doing right. Number one uh, is this multi-pronged strategy where they're investing at scale across a number of emerging technologies, so three or more. Uh, but they're investing at scale, so uh, they're investing at least $500 million in these emerging technologies. That was true for more than uh, 50% of the alpha innovators. The followers invested less only 29% of them invested $500 million or more. Hmm. The second power play, if you will, uh, is this risk mindset that um, allows these alpha innovators to fully assess security risks early in the adoption cycle. Uh, you know, we've talked in our previous uh, discussion that generally, um, you know, a lot of these executives are not aware of the of the risks associated with these technologies, and that they are they tend to be more aware uh, of the risks associated with technologies that they're where they're further along in their adoption journey. Uh, but when we dig deeper and we look at these, uh, you know, this awareness comparing alpha innovators versus the, the follower group we can definitely see that the alpha innovators are uh, much more aware of the security risks associated with these, with these technologies. For AI, uh, which is further along the adoption journey for both groups, the numbers do not, the, the numbers are very similar. So 76% in the alpha innovator group are aware of the security risks associated with AI. But when it comes to the other technologies, there is a, a big discrepancy between these numbers. So we see for 5G, 69% are aware versus 56%, 69% uh, are aware among the alpha innovator group versus only 56% uh, within the follower group. Uh, for quantum, it's 75% versus 53%. And for XR, it's 67% versus 52%. So again, it seems that this first group, these alpha innova innovators, uh, are adopting this risk mindset, have uh, a better awareness of the security risks um, of these emerging technologies, uh, wherever they are in the adoption cycle. Do you suppose, I mean, is this as, as uh, straightforward as that, you know, that some organizations are, are more proactive versus being reactive? Exactly. Uh, I think those, that, that's the, those are the kinds of insights that we wanted to um, uh, analyze and explore and understand. 
uh, what are these behaviors that are making these bigger companies um, or these alpha innovators, sorry, not necessarily bigger companies, uh, be um, be able to adopt one or many technologies at the same time and do so, uh, you know, at scale and with security in mind. What are those behaviors? And it's the being pro proactive is definitely one of them. That's the CyberWire. A happy Labor Day to everyone, and especially to those of you in the U.S. who, like us, will take Monday off. We'll be back as usual on Tuesday. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. Don't forget to check out Research Saturday here in this same feed tomorrow. Dave sat down with Chet Wisniewski and Dan Schiappa from Sophos on ransomware package TK, and the five signs organizations are about to be attacked by ransomware. That's Research Saturday. Don't miss it. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our amazing CyberWire team is Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Elliot Peltzman filling in for Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.